go down in deeper. Um, so we've been in this, uh, this sermon series centered around Hebrews chapter 11, Barry Brigham and Faith, and in it we've said some significant things, uh, such as that when we commit our minds, our hearts, uh, just to going on the offensive for the kingdom of God, of living the kingdom of God out, number three things happen at firstly. Number one, we experience a renewed belief in Jesus, Right? And uh, a new belief or a new understanding of his mission of the church. Number two, we experience a renewed attitude for servanthood, our servanthood of our time and our talent and our treasure. That was our, th- these, are, these three points came out of our first week. And lastly, a third point is that we develop a more strategic prayer effort, that we actually go on the offensive in our prayer life instead of just living in a defensive posture in our prayer, uh, just praying, get me out of this when something bad happens. We actually pray into using our imaginative faith to pray into things that we want to see uh, or that we believe God is giving us as visions for our future uh, and our church, right? In addition, uh, for our church to have this barrier-breaking faith that we're talking about, we've got to apply a few things to ourselves and also corporately, corporately as a church. Number one, to remember that our faith is the means by which God works in the world, right? He works through, through the church, through our faith and through our reliance on him. Number two, that we believe that God can make something out of nothing. And that, that's a pretty big point to me, that God can create something out of nothing, creating an even new, gr- newer, greater reality uh, for us and our church. Number three, that we strive to actively believe the promises of God to see something come out of nothing, right? That we actually put our faith in these promises and we believe them without, you know, constantly questioning and everything, right? Then last week we said barrier-breaking faith can result in the salvation of others, when we, number one, faithfully trust God can accomplish the impossible, which is sometimes hard to believe, right? Um, number two, that we can faithfully obey the commandments of Jesus to model to others Jesus as the only source of salvation. And I know that's not you know, always popular to hear with people. And, and we're not just talking about mortality, like the, from death in the end. We're talking about every day, all the things that keep us tripped up, all the things that, that rob us of life, that, that harm or hurt or, or trip up our soul, right? That Jesus is constantly, we're, we are saved once and for all, but we're also being saved in the same process. He's restoring our souls as we walk with him, creating, uh, creating his likeness in us. And today we want to look at Abraham in uh, Hebrews chapter eleven, seventeen through 19, which says this, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Isaac was his son. He who had embraced the promises, Abraham who had embraced the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Now, notice that in, in, in this culture, to have a son, the firstborn son, was a big, big, big deal, right? So he's about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And, all, and, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death, uh, that's, and this is an amazing story. The complete story is found in Genesis 22, 1 through 14. A little lengthy, 
but I do want to read it to you. Bear with me, right? Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, right? Now, this is, this is where it gets difficult for us because God challenges our affinities. Nothing can come up between us and him. Nothing becomes before, uh, before the Lord in our life. So he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. <laughs> Right? Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place of God, that God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I, I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Uh, As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Ooh, that's a killer question, right? Number eight, Abraham answered God himself, will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together, and when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there, arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld to me, from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over, and he took the ram, and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now, that's a pretty incredible story. You know, we know that some couples have a really difficult time getting pregnant, right? In our modern age, it's it's difficult sometimes to get pregnant. Your body just doesn't, you know, take or something like that, right? And we've heard the stories of wives that just don't feel complete until they can have that baby, right? It's it's just a very strong emotion. When my wife wanted a baby, man, there was, she was just on, maybe I shouldn't say this, she was on point, but she was like, woo! I want a baby. She wanted a baby bad. I mean, there was just no talking her off that cliff, right? And uh, you know a little bit too much about me right now. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, couples who struggle to get pregnant now go to fertility clinics and they pay thousands of dollars for in vitro fertilization or whatever the process is these days. Maybe there's new processes. I don't know. But the point is that when that baby comes... When she finally gets pregnant and she births that baby into the world, it becomes the center of their reality, the center of their universe. Everything revolves around that child. And we all know it because what happens? All the baby pictures start showing up on Facebook and Instagram and everybody's like, oh, there's another picture. Now, I will say that if you missed little Ezra Schaefer singing Rocket Man on Instagram this week, you missed the most beautiful, just like post-worthy post in, in, uh, of a kid in the world. 
just rock a man, right? It was just the cutest. My, my daughters kept playing it over and over again. And they would roll on the floor laughing, rock a man. Uh, it was great. So go, go befriend the Schaefers and find that video. It was, it was really, really cute. Apparently he sings it before he goes to bed at night and all that stuff. But, um, but you know what? You have that baby and it is just the center of your universe, right? Your affinity for that child is so extremely strong, right? And, and when it comes time to leave that baby for the first time with a babysitter or to drop them off at Sunday school for the first time or to put them in a daycare because you've got to go back to work, that for a parent is the most scary moment ever with your first child at least. It gets easier when you have more. You're like, oh, just get rid of them. Take them. <laughs> Bring them back next week. You know, I'll pay you. I don't care. But, you know, it's it, like your first child, it is, a, it is a scary moment, right? And here we have this elderly couple who have long since given up ever the hope of ever having a child in a society where the ultimate mark of honor is to have this child, this, this firstborn son, and much, much more so than in our day. And that must have been very, very hard on them. You, you have to think about their emotions, their lives, right? And then this promise comes to Abraham. And, and the promise is that your progeny will, will uh, be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Go out and look up. Even if you could count them, that's how many, you know, how much is going to come from you, you know, in this world. But then soon after they have the son, here's, here's this charge. Sacrifice him. Kill him. Then burn his body as a sacrifice on this altar. That's a gruesome thought. Right? And when Isaac says, Daddy, you know, where's, where's the lamb? I, if I was Abraham, my knees would have buckled. I wouldn't know what to say. And when it came to time to bring that knife down, I think it's, it's my belief that Abraham had every intention to do so, right? Because every action on his part up to this point led to that conclusion. But I'd also think that he was extremely relieved when he was stopped from doing it. Abraham, you've got to understand, was the starting point. He was the starting point of the nation of Israel. He was, he was the, he, this was a pivotal moment in history. You know, was it that God needed to see his devotion? Maybe so. Or, or was it more so that Abraham needed to see how far his devotion would go? His own devotion would go. Because God has chosen to work through people and he needs to see us responsive. He needs to see us responsive. We need our tests in order to know that nothing comes before the Lord in our lives. Nothing. It's the heart that our affinities towards people or things are the hardest things that challenges, challenge our devotion to the Lord. You know, so would we have done this? Would Todd Hall, who is wearing a 6'8 t-shirt I will notice today, uh, would Todd Hall have marched little Owen up that mountain? With his, you know, carrying the wood and all that kind of stuff. Would Mike Thomas have marched little Lucy up that mountain? Would, would Albert Ruggieri march little Antonio up that little fat ta- Tony? Would Mark House, you know, march little Luke up that mountain? Would I march little Aiden up that mountain? Right? He's not so little anymore. He's 23 now. But even if we knew 
beforehand, even if we had foreknowledge that we weren't going to actually be required to sacrifice that child, we would regard the psychological damage on our child just too great. We'd never want our child to grow up thinking, oh my gosh, my dad was willing to kill me for his belief in God. It's crazy. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed while you read the scriptures that God never calls us to an easy job? He doesn't call us to easy tasks. He really doesn't. John Ortberg says, God never comes to Abraham or Moses or Esther and says, I'd like you to do me a favor. It's not going to take you much time, right? And I wouldn't want to inconvenience you. That's not how God asks things of us, right? God is intrusive into my life. God is demanding. He's exhausting in my life. He's costly and he's realistic, right? He lets us know that this world is a hard world to live in and that our faith has to be strong enough to counteract that pressure. God comes first. A beautiful lesson, but a painful one to learn. A painful one to learn and one that we often have to learn over and over and over again. How often do we see the, the, the failures uh, and struggles, especially in the church, as negative in our lives, right? You know, at, at, at certain times in church life, we have to address conflict uh, for the, uh, the spiritual and the organizational health of our members. You know, other times we might need to sacrifice our time, our energy, our effort, and our comfort for those that are struggling, Right? And in the moment, those sacrifices seem almost meaningless. They might seem meaningless to us. But, but what would it look like if we saw all these sacrifices and all these struggles through the lens of a, this barrier-breaking faith that God calls us to as opportunities to experience resurrection and redemption among peoples? Because, number one, barrier-breaking faith Barrier-breaking faith sacrifices that which we value most. It sacrifices that which we value most. God promised Abraham would have a family which would bless the world. It would be huge. And his son, Isaac, destined to be the man through whom this covenant would be fulfilled. Right? That's, That's who he was supposed to be. And, and it all began in, in uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And here, his name is Abram, and later it's changed to Abraham. So it is the same person, if, you, if you're not familiar with this. But this is called the Abrahamic Covenant. And this is where this whole promise started. It said, the Lord, said, the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. That's, first of all, that's, that's a costly call. That's not something easy to do. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless you in order that you are a blessing, right? I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples, all the ethnic groups, all these different you know, groups of people, unique people, these culturally distinct people, will be blessed through you. You know, On the, on the earth will be blessed through you. So God chose this old barren couple, right, to build a nation to reflect himself to the world. That's what he's doing. He's beginning that right here. He's building a missionary force that is living out God's kingdom before others, inviting them all into relationship with him. 
Israel was always meant to be a missionary force. So is the church. Abraham was the starting point, right? And he'd have to have a child to do that, this child Isaac. And this is reiterated in chapter 15, 2 through 6. It says, But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus. So, you know, uh, he, he is saying, and he says, verse 3, And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant of my household will be my heir, which would be customary, right? And then the, Lord of the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. You can't count how many people are going to come from you, right? And here's the kicker verse. Verse 6. Abraham, or Abram, believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. He just simply believed him. He just simply had faith. He didn't do anything to earn his righteousness other than just believe. It was given to him, right? And these were God's promises to Abraham. Ones on which Abraham acted Believing these promises and not going about demanding explanation from the Lord necessarily. And nothing was more cherished to Abraham than was Isaac. Nothing. I would imagine even his relationship with his wife may have come second to to this relationship with Isaac. Isaac came about a lot later, right? He's his father. He's to take care of him. He's to raise him up. There's a, there's a deep affinity there. Now, we all, we all realize, we all know that sin stands in the way of our relationship with God, that our sin, that when we indulge in our sin, it clogs up our relationship not only with God, but also with other people, right? Everybody's sick this morning. <laughs> uh, it, we all know that sin stands in the way of our relationship with God, that it gets in the way. But we don't always recognize that our affinities toward God's, our, our good things in life uh, can stand in the way of our devotion to God's will as well. When we allow our American dream or even family members to eclipse God's calling in our life, we put ourselves in the place of God. We've said at that point that we know better, that we, we value this thing more than you. And in doing so, we break the first commandment uh, in the Ten Commandments, and we step into sin, you know, even though that thing is normally a good thing for us in our lives. Our regard of it, placing it before God, becomes prideful and sinful. And God wanted Abraham's faith and trust, Right? And, and, and he put him to this severe test. And this isn't because God's like arrogant and cruel and all that stuff. That's, that's not what it is. Rather, it is absolutely what's best for Abraham, best for, with, for Isaac, and also best for the whole world. Right? God tests our faith even today, right? Challenging our natural affections and, and, and often asking us to lay down that thing which we value the most in the world. To put it in the hands of God. See, it is good for everybody around me to see that Jesus comes before everything in my life. Jesus comes before my career. Jesus comes before my home and my finances and even my family. 
Contrary to popular belief, it is good for our kids to know and to see that they are not first in our life. It is good for our kids to see that they don't come before God, that God comes before them, that it teaches them to honor and pursue Christ as first and foremost in their own lives. It's good for your kids sometimes to say, no, I can't play baseball with you in the yard today. I've got to go do ministry. God's called me to go do this thing, and I've got to go do that. Sometimes it's good for your kid to say, oh, my dad's doing something really important. My mom's doing really something important. Something that God wants them to do. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We could preach sermons on that, right? On that one verse. I listened to a podcast this week that Julie sent to me uh, where the pastor was speaking of the difference between simple converts to Christianity, as opposed to disciples. We're called to go make disciples, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Had to mention it, right? I've mentioned it in every sermon. I had to mention it. We're called to go make disciples of all nations, right? In the Great Commission. Now, converts are simply people that say they believe, but nothing really much happens in their lives. Their faith lives are sort of milquetoast and bland. You know, they kind of do their own life, and they say, Jesus is going to save me, Right? Converts are great. I, I'm glad if you, if you consider yourself, you know, in the door, that's wonderful. I hope that God challenges your faith someday. But disciples are different. Disciples um, live sacrificial lives. They make decisions with all of their time, all of their ta- talent, and all of their treasure to follow Jesus wherever he's leading them. Even through the shadow of the valley, the, you know, the, what, what is it? The shadow of the valley of death, right? Did I get that right? Thank you, amen. If I got it wrong, forget it. But, but they are transformed people. They are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. They are changing. They are carrying their cross through life, right? They're, they're making decisions, you know, based on what Jesus is calling them to do in his word and through, through interaction with the Holy Spirit and in their church life. They're growing in Christ-likeness. There's a very big difference between a convert and a disciple. I would agree with that. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, it says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These may have come so that, you, so that the, the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We have to lay down our desires to pick up his heart, his process in life. That's what he calls us to. Luke felt this central call when he wrote Acts 20, 24. He says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Everything about him wants to exhibit Jesus to the world. Not his American dream, not all his hopes and dreams. Now that's reinforced in James 1, 2, and 4. It says, uh, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 
And this refining of faith, this refining of faith resets the eye of our soul back onto Jesus, who is the only true source of salvation from not only just death in the future, right? But any of this stuff in life that trips us up, that keeps us from living truly what we are to be, right? John Ortberg talks about two kinds of freedom, two definitions of freedom. First of all, he says one is freedom from, right? Freedom from the external restraints of the world, right? The external laws and things like that. And the second is freedom for. Freedom for becoming what you were really meant to become. And the second one he calls soul freedom, right? That's what this, and freedom for is why Paul can be incarcerated and still feel free in Christ, right? Because it doesn't affect you internally, whatever happens out here. Freedom from is where you seek to be free from all the external constraints, somebody telling me what to do. And it's funny because Ortberg uses the example of his wife, he and his wife laying in bed at night and his wife uh, is leaning over. She just leans over after she's closed her book to turn off the light. And John Ortberg says, I command you to turn off that light. You have to obey me. So what does she do? Wives, what would you do? Leave the light on. You just go to sleep and you leave the light on all night because what she's saying is, I am free from your commands. You are not my boss, right? That's freedom from. But what Jesus says to us in his word, you know, from the moral law of the Old Testament through his death and through his resurrection in the New Testament is that you can have freedom for becoming who you were truly meant to be as the created order of God, right? In other words, you can be the best possible you in Jesus. And so what we, what we have to realize is that these, this, this thing that God calls us to is not about don't do this, don't do that in the negative. Rather, as we get close to Jesus, the closer and closer we get to Jesus, all those sinful constraints that hurt us and trip us up and harm our soul fall away as we find internal freedom in him. So in God's moral directives of life, the Ten Commandments and the like of Scripture, he's not saying this is what you have to do as if he's placing external constraints on us. Rather, he's saying to us, this is who you are. This is what you're meant to be. This is the kind of person I created you to be. So we don't as much break the Ten Commandments as much as we break ourselves when we violate them. We harm our own souls when we violate them. We do damage to ourselves, and that comes out on other people. Number two, breaking faith, barrier-breaking faith believes in resurrection. It believes in resurrection. Abraham trusted even, even the death of his own son would result in resurrection. And in his faithfulness, his life became a foreshadow of God's offering his own son, Right? He was more than prophetic in saying God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. We know that now in hindsight, right? In Christ, God provided the perfect sacrifice for the world. God did what Abraham didn't have to go through with. God became the replacement lamb for this sacrifice. But Abraham was confident God wouldn't reject his promise. And that is also our call today. 
God's promises, promises to use the church as the means to accomplish his purpose in the world, right? Our sacrifices, our challenges as we walk this out can be redeemed and resurrected for God's glory and for our joy. Peter, if you look at him in the scriptures, he was kind of a rough dude, right? Peter probably didn't think much of himself until he met Jesus, and even uh, like to the end of it, he probably didn't think that greatly of himself. But in Matthew sixteen eighteen, Peter makes a pretty, or Jesus makes a pretty profound statement about Peter. He says, "And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not come overcome it." We become something great in Christ, right? God's using us in the same way now, right? As it says in Ephesians 3, it says, His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, through you, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a pretty profound statement of your purpose in the world. Paul saw himself as, you know, he knew how important this church. He saw himself as a servant of the church, as seen in Colossians 1, 24 through 29. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. He's willing to suffer for the church, right? And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Why is it still lacking? Because we're still going forward, right? For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, uh, to all the nations, right, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's our our goal. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So we, as the church, are called to contend for this glorious redemption in the world. Number three, barrier-breaking faith receives the promises of God. It embraces them. It takes them in. It doesn't pick them apart. It, it, it just receives them. Abraham had confident, obedient faithfulness in God and his plans to willingly sacrifice Isaac and received back his son without having to complete that sacrifice. His faith is what secured his present and his future. And God wants to do the same thing with us. As we have a deep trust in God and his promises, he will resurrect and redeem our sacrifices. He will use them and he will receive the best gift of all, and that is himself, to receive Jesus himself. We're Christ's ambassadors, exemplifying his life to others. As seen in Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ I no longer, this is a, a, a memorable, like memorize this verse, right? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You know, Jesus, we know, is 
referred to as Emmanuel, right? God with us. God with us all the time. In Matthew 28, he says, I am with you to the very ends of the age. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. As we faithfully abide in Jesus, as that becomes our central focus, is abiding in Christ, fruit bearing is a natural process. It just happens, right? Like a tree doesn't stand there and go, oh, I've got to make some fruit. It just happens, right? We don't live our lives on the defensive in faith, which I think, you know, sadly, many Christians do. We don't live our lives on the defensive in faith, sitting around trying not to sin, trying to be good, just exercising willpower, which never works, by the way. To simply focus on our sin, to simply focus on, you know, what we're not to do and all that kind of stuff, we focus on the self rather than on Jesus. Believing his promises of abundant life right now, we come alive when we embrace those. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2, and Romans 15, 13 lived out. We've been quoting those verses quite a bit lately too. You can go home and read them later. But Romans 12, 1 and 2, and 15, 13, great verses. It's the ordinary person that Rob Schaefer wrote about last week becoming extraordinary in Christ. It's Peter becoming the rock on which Christ builds the church. In Jesus, we're offered not only eternal life, Right? but abundant life right now, freedom for becoming what we were truly meant to become. It's not just about the quantity of time. It's about the quality of time with Jesus in the here and now. It's freedom for becoming who and what we were meant to be in Christ. And, and, but sadly, we get so tripped up. We, we allow ourselves to be imprisoned on things that just keep us from having life. So to apply all this, barrier-breaking faith will fulfill the promises of God when we willingly lay down what we love most. That's hard. That's a hard lesson to learn. But when we willingly lay down what we love the most so that we can get to that next level of faith. When we see failure as opportunity for God to resurrect what we think is loss to be transformed into gain. And finally, that we are open to redefining God's blessing, blessing as more than just material stuff. It's, it's spiritual in nature. It changes us from the inside out and makes us better, better people every day that we walk with Jesus. That's a good note to end on. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that your spirit is here. And it is nice to hear those bells. It is nice to end on that. It is nice to to be reminded that we are looking upwards and not down. We're not looking to the side. We're not looking behind us. We are looking up to you. And that there is hope in your gospel. There is life to be had, more so than we've, we've had to this point. I pray for joyous conviction in our hearts and the things that that keep us from experiencing that life and knowing that life and, and keep us from being what we are truly meant to be in you. 
I pray that you would take us farther, take us deeper, make us wider, Father God. Expand us, expand our influence, expand our joy, expand our understanding of your grace and your mercy in our lives. And convict us where we need to be convicted. And help us to just lay all this stuff at the foot of your cross.